This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Follow Buck on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You see the jobs numbers. You see the way the economy is going right now. And it's it's masking the socialism, friends. I just I just want to say it. I want to be very clear about it. You cannot uh, you cannot forget that Joe Biden has been put in a in a very advantageous position in terms of the timing. Timing matters a lot. My dad has always been a big, big proponent of saying that the timing really matters. Timing is everything is actually one of his favorite uh, sayings. And Biden comes in. He's got a vaccine and he's got a, a an economy that's ready to reopen, ready to go. Of course, he's slowing it down, making it worse, spending too much money, you know, regulating things, going to raise taxes, going to mess the whole thing up. But he unfortunately it's going to take some time. This is this is a constant problem with Democrats, whether it's their ruination of California or any number of other policy decisions they make. It takes a while to see the bad effects clearly. I mean, we can reason and we can understand in advance what's going to happen. But with the economy, it's going to you're going to have to wait a little bit. I'm, I'm hopeful that the American people will at least wake up to what's going on in time for the midterms because you know you see these jobs numbers today you see what's happening and you, you got to think to yourself well it could be worse right i mean employers added two hundred and sixty-six thousand jobs in april um, but unemployment rose to 6.1 percent so there's a, there's some difficulty in filling some of these roles we'll get into that in a moment but i'm talking about the economy because i also want to make sure that if you are trading right now, if you're somebody that's trading your own stocks, I've got a secret weapon for you. My friends at Carnivore Trading, they think the market's actually on the verge of some historic gains this year. Put aside the realities of the of the Biden administration and all that for just a second, because the market can have what's called a melt up period where there's just so much money sloshing around so many people involved that you can see huge gains in certain sectors. That's why you want experts guiding your trades. Carnivore Trading is an elite squad of strategists. I'm getting text messages and trades from them all day long. They influence major Wall Street investors. And if you sign up with them, they'll send you to your phone text messages that have real-time trading information that they want you to engage in so you can get some big gains too. You mirror their trades with your discount broker or pass. But why would you pass when their trades routinely crush the S&P 500? And here's their guarantee. You'll earn five times your monthly subscription or double your money back. That's right. Five times the subscription fee you pay every month just by mirroring their trades. The market could be on the verge of this massive upswing any day now. Get off the sidelines. Mirror Carnivore's trades today. Right now, you'll get two weeks free. That's right, two weeks free. Just visit GetOurTrades.com and use promo code BUCK. That's the website, GetOurTrades.com, promo code BUCK. See website for guaranteed terms and conditions, past performance, not a guarantee of future earnings. The border czar who can't find the border. That's what you have to think of with Kamala Harris. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Now, I know she could actually find it. I know if she wanted to get there, she could. She doesn't want to go. And we should all ask the question, why? I've been pointing this out for weeks. I'm just some guy who works in the media. 
I got down to the border, spoke to Border Patrol, saw the children crossing in large numbers, saw adults huddled together, coming across in rafts, walking across like they had just been ordered to do so by the cartels because they had been. Uh, This is not difficult. Why won't Kamala go to the border? You have two simultaneous crises in this country right now that Democrats do not want you paying attention to because it is they're both their fault and they cannot fix them based on the ideology of the Democrat Party today. They can't fix them. They would have to go against their base. They would have to actually take uh, they, they would have to make decisions that would harm them politically in order to make the right moves to stop the crises from happening. It would upset the left-wing Antifa, BLM, open borders, lunatic lib squad out there, and they know that that's bad business for them. The Democrats don't want to handle it. Here's the first one. You probably already guessed the border. Kamala doesn't have any means of fixing this. The stuff they're talking about by sending some additional aid and having a a conversation with Central American countries, this is laughable. As I've told you, it's not only Central American countries that are showing up in considerable numbers and numbers at the border. It is it is a, a majority to be sure. But there are people coming from all over the world because this is the, the biggest, best scam that you could run in the immigration system. You have to remember, because interior enforcement is essentially non-existent, all you have to do is get into the U.S. as an illegal and you're pretty much home free. You're good to go. So the whole game is just do whatever you have to do to get into the U.S. and then you don't have to worry about it. We're not even talking about all the visa overstays every year. There are hundreds of thousands of those. Now, not all of them stay forever, but a lot of them do. We're talking about people who are using the asylum process as a scam, essentially. And I think this is important because if you if you understand how this program has worked for many years, it's meant to be for somebody who if they if they were sent back to the Soviet Union They'd be tortured and put in the gulag and maybe their whole family with them. So it's please, please, America, you are the beacon of hope and light and liberty. Take me in. I beg of you. That's what asylum really is all about. You know, it's somebody who jumps from the ship that they're not even supposed to leave when they're in sight of of you know, U.S. shores. And they want us to because of the mercy and the, and the goodness of the American people. Bring, they want us to bring them into the American family. And look, it can be a beautiful thing, and there's a reason we have, it, have an asylum program. But what you have at the southern border right now are people who are either sending their children through, right, which is a very different thing. They're putting their children at risk. And I'm sorry, I know I'm not a parent, but I know enough about parenting to say that sending your 8-year-old into the hands of cartel smugglers or your 10-year-old or your 15-year-old is a terrible idea people are doing it they're doing it because it's working to get them into the country at least and the i've asked i asked border patrol i said why is it that they're they're sending their kids can't isn't there a better safe way to get their kids in the country they say well this way they figure they can either either the the illegals are already their illegal parent usually it's one is already in the u.s and so they're 
they're joining them or the illegal parent or parents will join after the child is placed with other family members in this country. So it's just gaming the immigration system in steps. And right now it's just really easy to do that with kids. All you have to do is get the get the unaccompanied minor to the border. The United States, because we are a good country of good people, we take the child in. And, and I want to be very clear, having seen these little kids coming across the border, some of them are very young. Some of them are babies and they're being carried by their you know, 12 year old sister. Uh, they're the look in their eyes. They're exhausted. They're scared. You know, yeah, we we take care of children. That's true. And, and that's not going to change. And that shouldn't change. But the adults that are doing this, they're breaking the law and they're gaming our system. And this is a mess. And until we change this process, until we set it up in a way where that's not the case, it won't stop. And they're also family units, mind you. It's not all, all unaccompanied minors. There are family units who are showing up. So that's parents with a child. Usually it's it's uh, one parent and they know because the word's gotten out. And I, I won't say what the age is. There's an age at which. If, the, if you have a child with you below a certain age, you're 100% guaranteed as the parent with the child to be released into the interior of the United States. 100%. You're, you're good to go. I mean, maybe if you're on like a terror watch list, they might have a problem. But other than that, how is trying to help conditions in Central America going to change any of this? It absolutely won't. I had said to you before that one point, well, I said over a million illegals are likely to be in the country this year. And actually, it's now being said that it could be up to one point five million, perhaps even more. We may hit when you add all visa overstays, when you add our porous open border, uh, when you add all this together, we may get close to two million people who are illegally in the United States just from this year. Might get to one point six, maybe one point eight million. I mean, who knows? It was one hundred and seventy five thousand last month. You know, you, you all can do the math on that, too. Right. You're getting close to two hundred thousand illegals coming across the border. Plus, you have, as I've said, hundreds of thousands of visa overstays every year. So you're, if you add that number in, it's actually about a half a million visa overstays in an average year. So, yeah, you're you're looking at the biggest year of illegal immigration in our history. And while Democrats and the journos and the media they think that this is great. This is a humanitarian thing. Uh, we're a nation of immigrants. You know, they've been taught all they've been brainwashed with all this stuff, although I think a lot of them really do do believe it. Uh, it's not just repetition for its own sake. Uh, the American people at some level understand. Well, hold on a second. You're going to be raising taxes. You got all these rules and regulations that you hold Americans to. And if they break laws, they're held responsible unless they're Democrats. But that's another conversation. And they have to be important, you know, politically connected Democrats or on an issue that is important to the Democrat Party. We do know there's a two tier justice system in this country. That's just the way it is. I actually saw Preet Bharara on the uh, I was I was out last night after a speech, saw Preet Bharara on the street. He was sitting at a sidewalk cafe. I, didn't, I don't know the guy. I didn't say anything to him. But there's part of me that wanted to say. When did you become a left wing nutso? Like, when did you totally lose it? The fact that he was the U.S. attorney is stunning, stunning to me uh, for, for the Southern District of New York, which is really the most prestigious prosecutorial post in the country uh, outside of being the you know, attorney general 
itself. So they can't fix the border issue. They don't want to fix the border issue, which is why Kamala won't go down there. Then you have the other one. The other big challenge, the other big crisis. I know they hate that word because they understand optics and propaganda and perception management. And the word crisis for a political administration does have a certain resonance. The other one is the murder rate. I know I know on Tucker's show last night, he did a whole deep dive into New York City's murder rate. And he had my friend Joe Borelli on who I'm I hope Joe Borelli, the councilman from city councilman from Staten Island, ends up being the mayor of New York one day. I think he'd be he'd be great at it. He's a very both a very smart and very good guy. And and Joe Joe was on the show. They're talking about New York City crime. And we use New York um, as the canary in the coal mine. I mean, we, we look at what's going on here in this, the biggest city in the country, because the numbers are very, very large. And, and so you can really see the trends. But my friends, it is happening all over the country. You've had big spikes in homicide and and rape and terrible crimes in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, St. Louis, Dallas, Austin, you know, Portland, Denver, every major city in the country has had a real surge in violence. And this is after decades of almost unbroken decline nationwide. How are Democrats going to fix this? The only way to fix the, the problem we have with the spike in crime, and it's not just a spike. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a tsunami. The only way to fix this is to do the exact opposite of what the Democrats have set themselves up for when it comes to law enforcement issues, which is back the blue. You got to support your cops. You got to say, thank you, law enforcement officers. Thank you, men and women who wear that uniform, who not only help keep us safe and also catch the bad guys when they do things so they're punished and they're not still on the street, a risk to other people, but also for stepping in and being really on-the-spot social workers and first responders and a whole bunch of other jobs that are necessary in our society. I mean, you know, for, for every time there's a cop that has to you know, pull his taser or maybe even pull his weapon in a lethal force incident, there are thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of times where a cop is saying, you know, you don't really hate your brother. Hey, 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 you over there, put the baseball bat down. You guys are a family. You're getting home. all the time, all the time. But, you know, you don't read about that in the newspapers, but ask anybody, ask anyone in law enforcement, you know, I'm sure a lot of you families. I have, you know, my uncle's uh, uh, now retired, but he's uh, L.A. was LAPD. He was actually uh, Savannah PD before that, too. The guy loves being a cop. And. You know, you look at this and you say Democrats have set this whole thing up for failure. The one thing that they could do to stop the border from being in crisis is to stop letting people get what they want by gaming our system. They won't do that. Consequences for illegal entry. They won't do that. The one thing that they could do with a Biden administration could do to stop the enormous increase nationwide in violent crime and crime really of all kinds is more police support police understand the role of law enforcement 
and let them do their jobs and let them know that this society has their back because, you know, the average American absolutely does. But the elites and the media and the Democrats, they've concocted this cockamamie world where cops are the bad guys. Cops are the cause of the problems. You will not see anything about this in the Democrat media because these not only are they important issues, they're massive political liabilities for Democrats. And they don't have a way to massage this message. They don't have a way to convince people these aren't problems. So what are they going to do? Ignore it. They're going to ignore it until they either think the American people have become numb to what's going on at the border and with the crime rise, or they're going to find some way to distract us again with one trial, one incident. But whatever it is, whatever happens, whatever goes on, just remember this administration on critical issues of law and order, national security, and just just keeping the peace fails, not just because of ineptitude, but because they support ideas that cannot work in this country, that will not work. They support policies that fail and make this a more dangerous, lawless place. That's where the actual Democrat Party is today. And as soon as more Americans understand this and see this, not all of them will. Some of them are lunatic leftists. I know 30% of the country you know, thinks that MSNBC is the God's honest truth. But as soon as more Americans uh, you know, we have enough that we can take political power from these lunatics. That's where we're heading. We asked the legislature to do a lot and they delivered for the people of Florida. I think we have a, a number of good things to talk about. And um, we're here to talk about one of those good things. Obviously, we were very concerned with public safety during this session. We passed uh, the strongest anti-rioting legislation in the country that really says a couple things. One is. We're not going to let local governments defund law enforcement. Now, granted, in southwest Florida, that's probably not as much of a concern, uh, but that's something that could happen in some of these other enclaves in the state of Florida. Uh, by passing this bill and me signing it, that is not going to happen. If a local jurisdiction tries to do that, we're restoring the funding. I mean, I'm trying to be very fair minded here about about uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, because because I don't want to sound like I got a man crush on the guy. But he does have a nice tan. It looks like he's been working out. I, I think he's just doing a great job. I think he's doing a great job. And I, I'm 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 waiting for him to Christy gnome me. I'm waiting for him to do something really disappointing that has no justification. And that shows, oh, this is not actually the leader that I thought she or he is. I, folks. DeSantis is getting it done. And I and I know I, I'm reading all of your uh, all your emails. You say to me, Buck, I still think it should be Trump, but I agree. DeSantis might be a great running mate. We can continue. This is like being members of the team. We are in the same family here. And you may think one pitcher should be starting and I might think another pitcher. We're, we're rooting for the same team. Uh, I just if DeSantis keeps this up. It's DeSantis plus MAGA with Trump's blessing and, and support. And and that's that's how I think we take back the White House in 2024 right now. That's where I am. And I know that that sounds 
so far out there, but he just gets it. He's sitting here saying defund law enforcement. We're going to actually put more cops out there and we're going to prevent localities from this defund the police lunacy. Where are other Republican governors on this? And I know there are some out there. I mean, there's, you know, there's governor of Oklahoma, governor of Mississippi, governor of Texas. There's a lot of plenty of red state governors who I think have it in them to take bold action here. But he's just every time we see an issue and I say, where is the Republican response to this? You know, where are the people who are making the case about how what the Democrats are doing is dumb and dangerous and reckless and how this Biden administration, Joe Biden, isn't incompetent. And the, the whole thing is so absurd that he's the president. I'm sorry. I still just look at this like you've got to be kidding me. I look for Republicans who are making that clear and who are making the case. And I just see another press release. You know, Ron DeSantis taking action against social media uh, censorship of conservatives. Ron DeSantis taking action on uh, law enforcement. Ron DeSantis taking action on voting laws. I mean, you're sitting here saying, yeah, it is possible. States can fight back against this. You know, I, I hate to use the term hashtag resistance, but Florida right now seems to be the leadership of the hashtag resistance. Now I have what we think is the, the strongest election integrity measures in the country. I'm actually going to sign it right here. It's going to take effect. So there you go. Bill is signed. And here's, here's what it does. We're making sure we're enforcing voter ID. Look, you have to show uh, a picture ID to do all these other things in society, clearly voting. We're also banning ballot harvesting. We're not going to let political operatives go and get satchels of votes and dump them in some drop box. We're also prohibiting mass mailing of balloting. We've had absentee voting in Florida for a long time. You request a ballot, you get it, and then you can mail it in. But to just indiscriminately send them out is, uh, is not a recipe for success. We're increasing transparency even better. In Florida, we track the votes coming in in real time, not the results, but we know who's voting, what your registration is, and we follow the turnout so that when the election's over, we know the universe of votes that have been cast, and it makes it so that someone can't dump 100,000 votes two or three days later. And then finally, we're prohibiting private money from basically running the elections like these Zucker bucks that they were doing in all these different parts of the country. Everything that he's saying here is smart is right, is essential for voting integrity at the state level. Every aspect of it. I know, I, I've, friends, you know me. I'm, I'm cynical about politicians. I, I don't like to be surprised when they disappoint me. I'm ready for it. And so I know one day I'm going to come on here and say, all right, DeSantis, he's, uh, you know, he's let me down a little bit on this one, but it hasn't happened yet. Just calling balls and strikes here. And so far, they're all he's throwing heaters down the middle. You like producer Mark. I could you think I could do a uh, baseball play by play? No, not even a little bit. Yeah, I, I, but I got the it's a heater, right? That's when you throw a fast pitch. Yes, that's a fastball. Yeah. There we go. That's all we need. He's throwing heaters down the middle. Well, Buck, that was actually a ball. Whatever. Still something like that. Anyway, the point is DeSantis is doing a really good job and. Uh, this this election, you know how you know this uh, this voter integrity law is good. The libs 
absolutely hate it. That's really all you have to know here. They despise this law. They're freaking out about it, just like they did the Georgia law. Why is it so very, very hard for them to imagine that people want there to be um, actual, real voter integrity protections? That it's important that we have people not feeling like we're going to have ballots that cancel out other ballots from people, right? Who aren't supposed to be voting or who are cheating. This is essential. They keep talking about defending our sacred democracy. We're always saying, oh, we're going to defend our sacred democracy. If people don't believe that the elections are fair, that's a huge problem in and of itself. But having safeguards in place makes people actually have have the belief that what they're doing is engaging in a free and fair process. You know, you, you could have no. You, honestly, we could have just just think about this as, as an experiment. We could have an honor system based election entirely. Just have pe- just have drop boxes set up. And then we just ever, you know, anybody, no one's going to cheat. No one cheats. Right. So we, have, we just have drop boxes. No one has to register. And you just take a ballot, which you can print off of a website online and you check or, you, you know, you write in the name or you check the box for the person you want. You drop it in the box. And then there's one day where we have, you know, some bureaucrats who count all the all the things put in drop boxes. Does that sound like that's a good idea? Does that sound like that would end up uh, the way we want it to? Would when you sit, sit there and think to yourself, hmm, people are cheating. If there was no chance of being caught committing fraud in election, do you believe people would cheat in elections? Of course, you're 100 percent sure people. So am I. Of course, people would cheat in elections. So safeguards are clearly not Jim Crow 2.0, as Joe Biden said, because he's such a moron. Uh, safeguards are, are not discriminatory. They're the, they're the basic you know, rules of the road we need for this to not feel like a farce. It's funny. You can even read the way that, uh, you know, when, when Hillary wanted a recount in 2016 of some votes or some states or it was being talked about, Democrats were, oh, of course, recounts are essential. There should be a Hillary recount. And when Trump want, when, when the Trump team is trying to do a recount in Arizona, the recount itself is is terrible and a threat to our democracy and all this other stuff. The things that Ron DeSantis is putting in place in Florida should be standard operating procedure in every single state in the country. Now, it's not going to happen in some states because now it's the, the messaging is out there that, oh, no, this is terrible. You're not supposed to do this. Uh, but every place where there's a Republican governor, Republican legislature, you should have these. And I think these are just on their on their face. I think these are politically neutral, completely fair, reasonable and responsible safeguards to have an election. I really believe that. I think there's nothing about this. That's that's an issue here. Here's uh, Mark Caputo talking about Florida's election law. Play five. Uh, I, I guess I'm going to say something that, that that's going to get me in trouble in that it's not as bad as the critics say it is. Uh, yet it was premised mm-hmm. on a lie. That is, there was not widespread 
systemic voter fraud, either in Florida or nationwide, that or in swing states that cost Donald Trump the election. And this was a reaction to that. And as you pointed out, Ron DeSantis had talked about, hey, you know, we did it right in Florida. Uh, we're a model. The problem is, is the former president got the base so stirred up that these politicians had to react. So they made some uh, changes around the edges. Uh, they they made the request for absentee ballots used to be on a, on a standing list. You could get them for two general elections in a row. Now you can just get them for one general election in the midterm. Uh, there are more restrictions on, you know, what some people call ballot harvesting, which is uh, when other people can drop off your ballot. And I'm in Miami-Dade County. Incidentally, we're the biggest county in the state. We already have some of those restrictions in place anyway. Uh, and in the end, what you have here was a solution in search of a problem. No, no, no. But that's a leftist reporter for Politico, which is, you know, you may know, you should know, is a liberal journal, you know, a liberal blog in uh, D.C. And and he's like, it's not as bad as people are saying this. That's liberal speak. I mean, I wanted you to hear that. I know that that's it's, it's annoying to hear one of these these Democrat reporters. That's oh the big lie or something. No. This is this is completely it's absolutely valid to look at the concerns that people had in the last election and make sure they're addressed in the in future elections by having reasonable, constitutional, good faith laws put in place. They, they can try to do this as much as they want. They can try to undermine this by creating some other narrative. But I would say this reminds me of how there were some times when Trump did something as president that uh, that they would say was legitimate for a president to do, but illegitimate for Trump to do because he's a white nationalist or because he's a, you know, a, a Russian spy or whatever it was. It's like, no, guys, just because you hate somebody doesn't mean everything that they do is illegal or unconstitutional or whatever. And just because they are terrified of Ron DeSantis does not mean that there's anything about the base and the big lie and all this other stuff that he's that he's talking about. No, these are completely reasonable restrictions. We saw Democrats are upset because we're figuring out what the game is here. They want to make election laws as as loose and vague and open to being schemed as possible. Some states are saying, no, sorry, not not on our watch. And the Democrats hate it. Every election integrity measure they've got a problem with. Well, I'm sorry, about ballot harvesting. You think that that's a good idea? Really? Yeah, I know some places allow it. It's crazy that they do. You have political operatives who walk around saying, you know, they go to seniors, they go to nursing homes, senior citizen care facilities. They say, hey, you fill out your ballot yet here? I'll help you. No, no, you don't even have to. I'll, I'll, I'll fill it out for you. The chance of somebody being discovered for doing that over and over and over again is zero, which is why Democrats like it, because we all act under this assumption. We all know that if one side's going to cheat in an election, it's going to be the Democrats. If one side is cheating, we know it's going to be Democrats. They know it and we know it because they're just so very 
deeply, emotionally invested in their politics. They can justify anything. What do you say? Is, is this targeting minority voters? Uh, no, I disagree with that. What it does is actually makes our process cleaner. One of the big things that happens in this is it gets rid of, the, of dollars going to these outside groups to basically create infrastructure around voting apparatuses. We already have infrastructure around voting apparatuses. That's what our polling locations are. That's what our supervisors of elections do. The other thing it does, it ends up ballot harvesting, something that frankly shouldn't be happening anywhere in the United States, let alone the great state of Florida. And it further improves on our voter ID practices in our state where we've been a leader. Last thing is you got to understand, in our state, minorities have not had any anybody who stopped them from voting or, or ways to, to decrease their ability to vote. Actually, the opposite has occurred. Uh, the share of the black vote in the state of Florida has been amongst the highest across the United States. So I don't listen to what Common Cause and some of these outside groups say. We've been the leader when it comes to election practices in this country, and we're going to continue to do so. He's right. Everything he's saying here about the Florida election law is true. I just want to just want to note that it does make the process cleaner. It does make it more secure. There's nothing about this that should be viewed as as problematic or troubling to anybody who really believes in and really wants an election that has the absolute bare minimum of fraud. That's where we are. That's what this is really all about. And I just think that uh, this is a much more important battle than than a lot of folks probably realize that there's there's a reason that Democrats are pushing H.R. one so much. There's a reason that they want to have these uh, very open ended and very vague and just open doors for fraud. Right. We, we all understand this. We all see what's going on here. And H.R. one, they wanted to take all the tricks that they pulled in the last election and use them in the midterms and the election after that. So this stuff, I know it can get a little in the weeds and, you know, it's it sounds like political uh, insidery stuff sometimes, you know, ballot harvesting and live ballots in the mail and all this stuff. But it's important. It really is. And that's why states like Florida that are doing the right thing got to call it got to call it out, got to give them support. Congresswoman Cori Bush said something that uh, yesterday that that did get some attention, and I, I wanted to just note it. Uh, yeah, this is Representative Cory Bush. I just want you to listen to this and see if you hear something that strikes you as just as a as a word or a phrase that's a bit odd. Play one. This is what desperation looks like, that chair flying down a hallway. This is what being your own advocate looks like. Everyday black women are subjected to harsh and, harsh and racist treatment during pregnancy and childbirth. Everyday black women die because the system denies our humanity. It denies us patient care. I sit before you today as a single mom, as a nurse, as an activist, and as a congresswoman, and I am committed to doing the absolute most to protect black mothers, to protect black babies, to pro protect black birthing people, and to save lives. Um, you probably got that. When she said black birthing people, I, I just, I know, is that... What does that mean? What does that mean? I'm I'm curious if that was just a if, if she misspoke or what I've never heard 
that uh, that term before, and it makes it seem like she used the word mother before several times. So I played that for you. And also, I just want to note. So now, now the story is that there's there's doctors and nurses are systemically racist against black women who are having who are having their babies. This is what this is the story. Very. When you think about this, this is a very damaging allegation. And and I'm just wondering for all the doctors and nurses out there how how they would feel about this notion. Cuz I do not believe it. I do not believe it, not for one second. I do not believe that people whose whose whole whose whole careers, whose reason for being, for getting up every day, whether it's a nurse, a doctor, anybody who's involved at actual in the actual process of of uh, critical health care for people uh, that they have this they're making racist distinctions about uh, pregnant mothers. I'm sorry. I, I, I know they're going to talk about, oh, there's there's different outcomes and all this other stuff. Uh, I, I don't believe that it's happening because people involved in health care are racist and they're going to have to show me a lot of proof to change my mind on that. Um. I, I, I don't know what the answers are. I don't know why this is happening. I just do know, uh, you know, when, when they point to some of this data, I think that this is an area where you can be sure the activists and the Democrat leadership are not being honest because any narrative of racial victimology is powerful for the Democrat Party. Um, and we know that. I mean, it's it's useful for them as a narrative. Uh so, yeah, birthing people here on Fox News. Representative Cori Bush scorched for referring to women as birthing people. She's reduced mothers to a function. One user called the term possibly the most degrading, humiliating, misogynistic phrase ever invented. So, yeah, pe- people are are noticing this. And and I'm sorry, the the left doesn't get to change all this stuff about gender, doesn't get to. Uh, change our language and our our sense of gender roles doesn't get to do all of this and then turn around and say, oh, what are you getting so upset about? Why is why is this a problem for you? What do you mean? So so what if we say that, you know, you you have to uh, you have to negate gender differences or so what if we want you to say birthing people instead of mothers? You have this. um, uh, Just to give you another addition to the gender stuff that's going on right now. A, uh, you'll have a transgender female uh, named Laurel Hubbard who will be competing in the Olympics in, uh, in Tokyo for uh, powerlifting. And if you look at Laurel Hubbard, Laurel Hubbard is biologically a large male. Okay? Former comp- uh, formerly a competitor as a male in powerlifting. Does anyone want to place any bets as to whether Laurel Hubbard will win the gold medal competing against women as a biological male in powerlifting in Tokyo? Okay. 100% chance. 100% chance. This is embarrassing. It's wrong. It's wrong. But Democrats want you to just cave on this because if something as straightforward as a biological male who is who was a competitive power lifter is going to have a a, an advantage over biological females if you can if they can get you to negate that 
they can get you to say anything. And that's the point. We've got Lila Rose joining us now. She is the president and founder of Live Action. She has a new book out, Fighting for Life, Becoming a Force for Change in a Wounded World. Lila, really appreciate your work. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Just for, for everyone listening, in case they don't know, what do you do at Live Action? Sure. So I uh, Live Action is the leading the global leader for the pro-life movement in education. So we reach 15 plus million people weekly with facts about human dignity, abortion. We promote motherhood and fatherhood, connecting and activating communities to other pro-life resources. And our goal is to abolish abortion and build a culture of life first here in the United States and ultimately internationally. And what is what is the current status of what you're seeing right now in, in the abortion movement across the country with this new administration? I and mean, just what are some of the fights that that uh, policy fights that we're engaged in right now? So the fight for life is at a fever pitch. And that's one of the reasons I just wrote my first book called Fighting for Life, because we've seen right now, politically, we're seeing the most extreme pro-abortion politics that we've actually ever had. I mean, under even under Obama, President, Vice President then Biden supported taxpayer, uh, rejecting taxpayer funds for abortion. So he actually wanted to protect what's called the Hyde Amendment. Now Joe Biden has gone far left. He wants to force taxpayers to fund abortions. He has put in powerful positions in his administration some extraordinarily pro-abortion and unqualified people, um, like Xavier Becerra as the head of um, HHS, Health and Human Services. This is a guy with no medical experience. He was an activistic lawyer from California who actually prosecuted and tried to throw in jail pro-life activists, some of my own friends. So it's really radical and extreme. But here's the good news. Despite the fact that the Democratic Party has gone so far left on abortion, I mean, just out of touch with the safe, legal and rare mantra of their past. But, you know, Hillary Clinton would say that about abortion. There's unprecedented stuff happening in the movement for life. I mean, there's been unprecedented pro-life legislation in the last two years at the at the state level. So over 600 pro-life bills in just two years. Dozens of them have been passed into law, made into law. And more Americans than ever are pro-life. The abortion rate has been declining over the last 10 years. So even though the politics at the federal level are so extreme, there's incredible work happening where people are just passionate and standing up because they realize this is a life or death battle and we need to protect our most vulnerable members of society, which are our preborn children. We're speaking to Lila Rose, founder of Live Action, and her book coming out uh, is Fight, Fighting for Life. Becoming a Force for Change in a Wounded World. Uh, Lila, you mentioned uh, Becerra going after some of your friends. I, is that the David DeLayden Center for Medical Progress issue? Can you tell? Can you remind everybody about that? Of course. So Live Action's done investigative reporting of abortion clinics for now over 10 years. I started doing that when I was a student at UCLA. Um, David DeLayden was a friend and um, co-worker of mine, so he worked with us at Live Action on some of these investigations he went on to start Center for Medical Progress, and he and Sandra Merritt and others exposed Planned Parenthood selling baby body parts. I mean, actually harvesting the parts, sometimes of babies that were born alive with beating hearts, because Planned Parenthood does abortion through six months. So some of their babies are born alive, and then they butcher them. And so they're selling these body parts. David and Sandra are exposing it. They're, this is happening in California. And at the time, the attorney general was Kamala Harris, now our VP. And she 
sends state agents to raid with 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 guns to raid David's apartment, to take his computers with the with the footage of Planned Parenthood's misdeeds, and then when she's replaced by Xavier Becerra because she goes off to be a senator, and, and by the way, well, while she's doing this, Planned Parenthood is giving her campaign contributions. I mean, she is in the pocket of the abortion industry and she's using state power to go after pro-life activists in the state. And then Xavier Becerra takes over and he actually criminally prosecutes, is prosecuting still the state of California, David and Sandra. So it's it's an insane situation here in California. But the crooks, the political crooks who are responsible are now running the federal government. And and this is the this is the Democratic Party today. This is the extremism. But of course, Buck, you know, most people don't know this. I mean, what I'm just sharing about what's happened with Kamala and, and Xavier Becerra and the Biden administration, most this is not being reported by most media. Most media thinks Joe Biden's a Catholic grandpa. I mean, right? it's That's amazing. They- I did see Lila recently. It was a headline. It was in either the Post or the Washington Post, the New York Times. I can't remember, but it was something along the lines of, you know, a challenge for a highly devout Catholic Joe Biden being an abortion proponent. You know, he's like, Wait, how is he highly? In what way is he highly devout? I always ask this question. Yes, I mean, it's it's crazy. The headline, you know, the very Catholic Joe Biden and the far right bishops are upset with him over abortion. To be Catholic is to be pro-life. Jesus came and gave his life for us. Abortion's the antithesis of that. You take life, an innocent child's life. It's completely the opposite of Christianity and Catholicism. And the church has stood against it for decades or for centuries, I should say. But listen, like, you know, this is this is it, though. This is the fight. I mean, that's why, you know, when I wrote Fighting for Life and it, it, it's it's a guidebook for all of us, because this battle is political. Yes, on abortion. But there's a lot of battles culturally happening. You know, what about whether it's transgender and children, whether it's um, the hookup culture and, and kids being just sexually objectified and pornography, whether it's abortion, whether it's marriage and um, just all the confusion our young people face. And so I wrote it because we all have a role to play in sharing the truth lovingly and building strong communities and fighting the political battles. And I think that my goal is, you know, it can be scary. <laughs> you can be unsure how to get started. You get you get pushback. But, you know, there's more of us than we realize. We're there's speaking more to, people than we realize. We're speaking to Lila Rose. She's the founder of Live Action. She has a book out, Fighting for Life, Becoming a Force for Change in a Wounded World. Lila, uh, how are you able to and what, what are the, the ways you're able to do uh, outreach on this issue specifically to college-aged and and 20-something-year-old women. Because as somebody who grew up here in New York City, I can tell you that even the women that I knew at that age when I was, you know, in college and, and afterwards who were pro-life personally, you know, who actually believed in being pro-life, they would whisper it as though they were telling me they were a secret member of a cult for fear of their, their not just their general peer group, their friends, their female friends, finding out about it. I mean, that's the kind of culture that's around the issue of being pro-life in some of the blue blue enclaves, uh, specifically for young women. How do you do outreach? How do do you get around that? How how can you bring together people who, you know, because I think those are the, the women who are a lot of times the most vulnerable to making a decision that they will regret for the rest of their lives on this. Mm-hmm. Well, we have to acknowledge, like you're saying and your experience, you know, growing up in New York, um, the the situation in our school systems, you know, most of our media, our entertainment media, they're very regressive. I mean, it's very pro-abortion. Uh, this has been going on for decades post the sexual revolution. So the mid 
20th century, this whole idea of sexual libertinism, you know, you can do what you want when it shouldn't translate to children. And, you know, sex is just about pleasure and consent. And if you get pregnant with a baby, that's not your fault. And that baby, you should be have the right to kill that child and abort, you know, end that pregnancy. And so that's the kind of cultural mentality right now. But but by the institutions, you know, public school systems, a lot in politics, entertainment media, big tech, a lot of people, they know deep down abortion's bad. It's tragic. I mean, even Andrew Yang, he's running for governor of New York City, and he recently said that abortion was tragic and we should protect children. I mean, he still says he's pro, pro-choice, but he was lambasted by uh, abortion advocates for that. And he kind of changed his tune because he realized he's not even allowed to say that. So what do you do? I mean, a couple things. And I talk about this a lot in Fighting for Life, my new book. Number one, realize you're not alone. You might feel alone when you're standing up for life and conservative values, but you actually aren't. A lot more people agree with you than you realize, but they're afraid to say it. So if you have the courage to say it, you will encourage others. You will give other people that courage. Uh, Another thing I would say is let yourself be heartbroken for the people that are being hurt because of these bad policies, these bad morals, this bad culture, and let your conviction and your passion drive you. Because we get courage when we look outside of ourselves and try to help others. And so if we're focused on, listen, you know, the truth that I know about life, if I can help save the life of one child, if I can help one mother choose life instead of the devastating decision of abortion, think about how beautiful and good that is. So I think if we change our mindset and then if we get, you know, a teammates in the fight, we realize there are people who are with us and we connect with them. I think it becomes a lot less scary to stand up for what's right. Speaking to Lila Rose, her book is Fighting for Life, Becoming a Force for Change in a Wounded World. And, and Lila, just for everyone listening, uh, you know, male or female, but for everyone listening who just wants that opportunity, wants, wants that ability. I mean, I remember uh, my my advisor at, at Amherst was one of the only pro-life, openly pro-life professors on campus, a man named Professor Hadley Arkes. And he told us openly the story about uh, how he convinced a student at Smith College to have her baby instead of abort the baby and, and, and just went through this whole. And people were tearing up when he was telling us about this. And it was really moving. And, and I always remembered that. And I thought of all the stuff this guy's done, of all the, the teaching of, of Socrates and Plato and the American founding, I bet whenever his day finally comes, he'll be proud and, and at the top of the list would be because, you know, now he knows that young man that 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 it was a boy and he grew up and the, the woman had this baby that then he got to know, you know, in life. Uh, how can people have their moment to do that? In what ways can people actually help you in this fight and in this mission? Well, first of all, in your daily life, just by being pro-life and being willing to talk about it and being willing to reach out and, and engage the people around you, you may find yourself in a position to save a life that you would have never imagined. So I would first just say that that's the power of being true to who what you believe and being willing to talk about it. Um, but, you know, the fight for life, I think there's no more important fight because literally lives are on the line and there's so many ways to get involved. I talk a lot of, about it in, in my book, Fighting for Life, but there's also with live action. So- how many ways to get connected, educating ourselves, joining our ambassadors program. It's an online program. You get free trading, you get free action items in your community. I guarantee you there's going to be a pregnancy center, a pro-life resource center that you can volunteer at. You can donate to, you can get involved with. If you're a person of faith or you are just a person who generally wants to witness for life, even going to an abortion clinic and praying peaceably on the sidewalk. Um, you know, there's an organization called 40 Days for Life. You can do that with them. And people literally 
drive by and don't get their abortion because they see people prayerfully praying for life on the sidewalk. So there's so many things you can do if you're a student. You can start a pro-life chapter at your campus. We have more information on that at liveaction.org. So just get in it, you know, get in the fight. There's there's little things you can do each day. Um, and it takes all of us, you know, it really takes all of us. The abortion rate is 2,300 kids killed a day. 2,300 boys and girls, if we each stand up and do our part, little thing each day, we can change that. We can continue to get the abortion rate to decline, and we can change the face of our country. Lila Rose, founder of Live Action. Check out her book, Fighting for Life, Becoming a Force for Change in a Wounded World. Lila, thank you. Thanks for everything you do. Thanks for having me. I think we can do it right around now. I think we should now. start lifting these restrictions as, as I think we should start lifting these restrictions as aggressively as we put them in. We need to preserve the credibility of public health officials to perhaps re-implement some of these provisions as we get into next winter if we do, do start seeing outbreaks again. And I think the only way to earn public credibility is to demonstrate that you're willing to relax these provisions when the situation improves. That's what gives you the credibility to implement them when things worsen. So I think as we get into May, as we see prevalence levels start to decline even further, especially if you're in environments where you know you have a high high prevalence of vaccination, where you have a lot of vaccinated people, I don't think you can you have to contain these mask mandates. Hmm. I, we, since you say that, I'm fully vaccinated. Everybody on my team in this building is fully vaccinated. We still distance. We still wear masks at every moment that I'm not sitting out here and way distanced. Should we be taking our masks off? Do we not need to wear those anymore? I think over the course of this month, we're going to see the picture improve sharply enough that by the end of the month, we're going to be lifting these mask mandates, certainly outdoors. But I think you're going to start to see municipalities lift the mask mandates for indoors as well. Um, certainly, as we get into towards the end of May and into June, I think right. it's going to be self-evident that the prevalence has declined to levels where the risk just isn't what it was. Friends, what was the most important thing that uh, Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA chairman and one of these talking heads from the medical policy community you constantly see on TV. What was the most important thing that he said there? Of all the stuff he's talking about, lifting the mask mandates, what was the most important thing? The ability to re-implement them. What have I been telling you all along? Now, I know it's easy to say, well, hold on, Buck. He's saying we should get rid of the mask mandates you know, soon. He's actually pushing against Fauciism. He he's uh, he's saying, you know, later this month we should. Yeah, the mask mandates did nothing, did nothing, didn't work. Look at the data. Don't listen to me. Forget what I forget my analysis. Forget what I'm telling you about this other than go look at data. Mask mandates don't work. You know, and I say it that way because sure, is there can they show some kind of a a situation with a mannequin and a spray bottle where it's, oh, look, there's less particles or something. Okay, yeah. Is that actually real-life usage? Someone sits there, they're like, oh, I got my mask on. Oh, oh, but it's time to eat. Mask goes down. Does the virus say, hold on a second? The person pulled their mask down for a minute. So, you know, we're going to, we're going to, let's be fair. You know, COVID doesn't want to be, doesn't want to be too, uh, play too dirty here so we're gonna wait till the mask goes back on you pull it down for uh, you know uh, how long before you have and that's assuming that if you think that the porous mask that actually has airflow up and below the actual mask is is enough which i don't think i mean the whole thing is crap we learned this in the spanish influenza pandemic didn't do a damn thing we had the same fights a hundred years ago and the mask maniacs were oh 
but the, the most important thing here, the most important thing is what he said about reinstituting. Mark my words, coronavirus is not going away forever. COVID-19 is not disappearing from the face of the earth. Uh, There will be some COVID in the winter of 2021 into 2022, and we will have mask mandates, and there will be some limited, uh, not so much lockdowns, but there'll be restrictions again. There'll be capacity restrictions in some places. There'll be mask mandates in places, and they're going to make this the new normal for dealing with respiratory virus season every year unless we say no. We're going to have to tell them, go blank yourself. They will not let this go. They like this control. They like the feeling of virtue that comes from it. They like all of it. The, I'm, I'm telling you this is going to happen. I, I can't tell you in how many places. I mean, if you live in Wyoming or South Dakota, you probably won't have this. But if you live in California, New York, uh, New Jersey, uh, Illinois, Michigan, oh, yes. Oh, yes. They want to start rolling things back now so they can roll them back out this winter. We better get ready for that fight because I'm going to lose my mind on these lockdown lunatics. Where does wokeness come from? And why is it seemingly overtaking America these days? We'll talk to uh, God Sad right now. He's the author of The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. You can also uh, check out his podcast, The, Sa- the Sad Truth with Dr. Saad. <laughs> so a lot of, a lot of wordplay here. Uh, God, great to have you. Oh, thanks so much, Buck. Good to be with you. Let's just start with this. I mean, because I know you deal with parasitic ideas in your book, uh, or or the parasitic mind, rather, infectious ideas. Uh, wokeness now, I, I just run through lists for people because they say, oh, it's just political correctness. It's not that bad. It's not as present uh, everywhere as some people are saying. And then I run through a list, and by the end of it, and I can do it off the top of my head, People are terrified. They're saying, what the, what the hell is going on in this country? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the idea that, oh, come on, it's not so serious is precisely what in Chapter 6 I talk about is a, a malady, which I coined as ostrich parasitic syndrome, right? The, the metaphor of the ostrich that buries its head in the sand, refusing to see reality for what it is, is exactly what these folks are doing. And I, I find that position really grotesque because what does it mean, oh, it's not really serious? Like how many people have to be canceled? before you take it seriously? How many people have to admit to you that they self-censor at their job, at in their classes at the university, as professors, before you think that it is something worthy of your attention? So I think that the people who are enunciating such positions simply don't understand how serious it is when each of the foundational values that define our great societies are being eroded one cut at a time. What are the... the- the intellectual foundations of I mean, is it is it just relativism, uh, deconstructionism? I mean, how, how did we get to this point where one we have we have a, a belief on the left that that truth is is essentially a function of power 
and also a, a belief that treating people differently, you know, it, it's like we've, we've gone in exactly the wrong direction, treating people differently on the basis of sexual orientation or skin color, meaning some better than others, is actually a moral imperative. You just have to pick the right people to treat better as a function of law. How did we get here? Well, I, I think it stems from the, the, the multitude of idea pathogens that have sort of come together in a, in a perfect, uh, you know, tangle, right? So if you think about, say, in medicine, you, you know, if, you, if you're only overweight, it might be okay. But if you're overweight and you have diabetes, well, that's worse. If you're overweight, you have diabetes and you smoke, it's worse, right? So each of these idea pathogens, whether it be postmodernism, deconstructionism, militant feminism, uh, you know, critical race theory, each one on their own might not be sufficient to, you know, bring down the edifices of reason. But once you put them together in a poisonous cocktail, then it becomes very difficult to fight against it. And I think that's what's been happening over the past 40, 50 years. Each of these idea pathogens were spawned by super progressive uh, professors, typically who are leftists on university you know, campuses. And then these idea pathogens eventually made their way out of the proverbial lab, so to speak. And now we find them in every nook and cranny in the HR departments and politics and science. And uh, unless people push back against it, it's going to be a really slow train ride to hell. Do you feel like a part of this is that people have to, if you're going to be woke, uh, which, I mean, I, I describe this to my audience as weaponized political correctness or, or political correctness wielded by those who are now in power, right? And if, you, if right. I look back to the 90s and even the early 2000s, there was a lot of requests for tolerance, right? Well, just be tolerant of these ideas or of this, of you know, these different notions that certain groups would forward. And it was, come on, just just be tolerant. And then it transitioned, I'd say, in about the last 10 years to do this or else celebrate this or else there's been a, a total right. shift and we've seen this whether it's on transgender rights we've seen that you know there's a whole range of issues you can point to and say what was considered the extreme is now mandatory and and right. what was considered a a concession that the majority would make to a to a minority a political minority is, is now doctrine it's it's orthodoxy um what what is it exactly that's that's made that change. Do you, do you think that conservatives have just refused to understand this reality as it's unfolding before them? How did we get to this point? I mean, I think it's a combination of factors. I guess the best way to, to describe it is to go to the parable of the boiling frog, which maybe I'll just mention briefly in case some of your viewers are unfamiliar with it, right? So the old story is that if you take a frog, you put it in water, and you slowly increase the temperature such that it's always below a just noticeable difference so that it doesn't pick up the physiological change in the temperature, then it will happily, you know, boil to death, right? So this is exactly what's been happening over the past 30, 40, 50 years, right? First, it starts off as some esoterically idiotic, imbecilic, parasitic ideas within the confines of some humanities department on academic campuses. But then the people who were trained in this stupid nonsense become our politicians. But that takes 20, 30, 40 years before they ascend to these positions. So the boiling frog is now realized that it is about to boil to death. And this is why you sort of see it now accelerating, because it takes a long time. I mean, you start with stage one cancer, but you let it go for long enough. 
now you have stage four cancer and it's it's over for you and so this is the problem now we've reached that tipping point where these ideas are no longer confined to a small esoteric group of academics but they really define our reality everywhere that's why the left the left has a complete chokehold on every intersection of intelligentsia and therein lies the problem right i mean if we had more professors for example who were speaking out against these ideas on university campuses then we would have caught the disease at stage one but given that 95 98 percent of professors are all leftists then no one was there to excise the cancer we're speaking to God Saad. He is the author of The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. You can also uh, listen to his podcast, The Sad Truth with Dr. or Saad Truth with Dr. Saad. Um, so, God, I, I see now we have the cancel culture accelerating. One of the, the things that I've noted is that there are a lot of people who on the left, they have a all of the above approach to keep this going. They'll tell you there is no cancel culture, that it's a, the, the, the new name is accountability culture. I've heard right as if as if that you know, somehow changes what's going on or or they'll say that this is, you know, it's 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 exaggerated or they'll just say that it doesn't exist. I mean, there, there's all these different areas where it seems they're trying to throw dust in the eyes of, of the public about this. But when you have people being canceled for things that don't even I mean, the, the one that comes to mind recently is and this guy technically wasn't canceled, but he was you know, the, t- the subject of death threats and people were coming after him all over the Internet. I mean, a guy held up three fingers because it was his third win on Jeopardy. Yeah. He held up yeah. two fingers in the episode before one finger after he won the first episode. <laughs> it is very clear to all involved what's going on here. And the 500 former Jeopardy contestants wrote in some group letter to say even if it was an unintentional act of solidarity with white supremacy, it must be denounced. I mean, this is like Soviet-level stuff now. I mean, unintentional acts of solidarity? This is madness. Well, I, I will share a very recent personal example of cancel culture. So last week, I spoke at the Jewish Public Library here in Montreal. I mean, but it was a it was an e-talk because obviously we're still under draconian lockdown in Montreal. But in any case, uh, so this is a Jewish organization. For your viewers who may not know, I'm a Lebanese Jew who escaped the Middle East under very dire circumstances. Uh, there was a very concerted and organized effort to get me canceled, deplatformed from speaking at the event by progressive Jews. So they first attempted to argue so this was LGBTQ activists who said, you know, we don't want this homophobe, transphobe here. And I'm guessing that they said that because I had appeared with Jordan Peterson uh, in 2017 in front of the Canadian Senate to speak about some of the, you know, the important issues dealing with Bill C-16, which was the transgender, uh, you know, bill. So I was a transphobe and a, a homophobe. When that didn't work, they then tried to organize by saying, hey, write in to try to get him canceled, but say that you are heteronormative and cis-normative so that the organizers know that everybody doesn't want him there. When that didn't work, they tried to cancel me because I was a racist bigot because I dared to criticize LeBron James and BLM and the idea of systemic racism because apparently I didn't know that in a free society you weren't allowed to speak out against the platform of BLM. They are a religion. We live in a theocracy. Shut up, Jew, and obey BLM. So when a progressive Jewish group is trying to shut down 
the Lebanese Jew from speaking at the Jewish public library, we've hit the singularity point of wokeness. I think you also identify something that's that's important for people to take note of, because I, I frequently see this myself in these kinds of cases where they it's it's just cancellation a la carte or they 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 will they'll do this. Well, he, you know, this person, they violate this tenant of, of my woke belief or, you know, they, they said this offensive thing. OK, well, we'll find another offense or they spoke exactly. with this person five years ago or they. And, and then eventually I, I find that the the end state is this person's words will do harm to me. Then they try this exactly. speech equals violence construct <laughs> so that so that there there's this. This bizarre notion, but it works sometimes with university administrators and corporations that, well, if, if I actually let this person, if I let them have their platform and, and speak to people about their ideas, it's tantamount to letting them show up, you know, with a baseball bat and start whacking people in the face. Exactly. And this is really how they do it. Exactly. And by the way, just just out of fairness to, to the Jewish public library, and because it's an important lesson here to take away for your listeners. JPL, despite all the hysterics, here was their response. No, right? Meaning, no, we are not canceling it. They didn't cancel it. Several hundred people attended the, the E event. And I heard two days ago that not a single negative word was uttered about my talk subsequent to them refusing to budge. So the reality is that people overestimate how much power these fascists have, right? Because they're so afraid that these, you know, the blue-haired people are going to cause havoc that they typically capitulate very easily. Whereas to their credit, the Jewish public library, you know, activated their inner honey badger and said, no, we are not canceling him. And guess what? This, the event went through, nothing bad happened, and everybody walked away hopefully enriched from the experience i guess your words were not so violent that everyone had to be rushed to the hospital afterwards that's the, <laughs> exactly. that's the good news we're speaking to uh, dr god Saad, and he is the author of the parasitic mind we're going to come back with him in a moment i want to ask him some questions about canada and lockdown and more so stay with us right, we're back with uh, dr god Saad. he's the author of the parasitic mind you can listen to his podcast the Saad truth with dr Saad, and i have seen video um of people being very aggressively and violently dragged out of homes. I think in one case, you know, uh, put on the ground and, and dragged away in handcuffs outside of a church. Canada has taken this lockdown thing. I mean, Trudeau's government has gotten really aggressive. What's going on up there? So, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what's the exact reason that, you know, Canada is more draconian, but I can assure you that. Uh, so, of course, you could talk about Canada in general, but I live in Quebec, which has its own peculiarities. And so in Quebec, we've, which is one of the provinces of Canada, similar to how you have states, let's say. Uh, so in Quebec, we've had a curfew until a few days ago where after 8 p.m. you don't walk out of your house. It's basically akin to martial law. And I think they've now expanded it to 9.30 at 9 p.m. Look, just like many of these COVID restrictions, they really seem to be haphazard. I mean, why is it 8, not 8.30? Why was it changed from 8 to 9.30? No one can explain it to you. But for whatever reason, we've, uh, we, meaning in Canada and in Quebec, we've taken a very draconian view. It's very, very frustrating. It's only recently, by the way, that I was able to get my first vaccine and the second vaccine will only be coming in August. So 
by the time I get my second vaccine, I would be I would have been under lockdown for almost a year and a half. I mean, a year and a half of your life is 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 more than what some progressives will recommend that a armed robber stays in prison. And yet millions of innocent people are twiddling their thumbs in their backyards. It's grotesque. And I hope it ends. soon. Is Canada, it, it seems to me, and I, I don't follow Canadian politics really at all. I just see it, you know, as it, as it comes up in the U.S. news cycle here and there. We like to make fun of Trudeau, which, you know, he's kind of the of ultimate, the ultimate, uh, you know, French Canadian beta male. But other than that, we, we don't seem to have much in the news cycle from Canada other than hockey teams and maple syrup. But I, I do want to know, are you further as a country? Are you further down the progressive line. Essentially, are the parasitic ideas that you, you write about in your book, uh, the progressive woke ideas that are taking over in America, is it even more prevalent and more powerful in Canada? How, how, would, you, how would you gauge that? Yes. Yes, that's a great question. And I, I would say yes, if only precisely for, the, for, for what you led off your question with, which is who is leading the country? And, and he or she sets the tone. So in the case of Justin Trudeau, he is truly the exemplar, the archetype of wokeness, right? So like every single idea pathogen that I discuss in the parasitic mind, he exemplifies to the utmost level, right? And, and, and again, it's not because necessarily he's an evil diabolical guy, but he is a product of his education. So he, he went to, you know, ultra progressive, you know, left leaning uh, educational uh, entities. And so he's the product of that upbringing. And so what ends up happening, the entire government uh, is driven by this wokeness, right? So uh, way ahead of you guys in Canada, we had what, what I call in my book, the die religion, diversity, inclusion and equity. It is now, you know, in every nook and cranny in, of academia. So if you apply for the highest chaired professorship that the Canadian government could endow a professor with, it is now no longer about the merit of your, say, research grant or your research program. It is really a function of whether you also meet certain die principles. I know of a physical chemist at a sister university in Montreal who's a you know top natural scientist who was refused the grant. And by the way, he's a person of color uh, and he was refused the grant. They didn't even look through the grant because he didn't meet you know, the requirements of what he needed to properly say in his diversity, inclusion and equity statement. Now, this is not happening in Yemen. This is not happening in China. It's not happening in Stalinist Soviet Union. It's happening right here to the north of the United States. So I would have to say that even though the U.S. is quickly catching up to our wokeness, we are still ahead of you on that curve. God Saad, author of The Parasitic Mind. Go check out his podcast, The Saad Truth with Dr. Saad. Dr. God, Saad, thanks so much, man. Always great to have you. Oh, thank you. Great talking with you. Cheers. I am joined now by a stalwart in the fight for truth in the era of Fauciite madness, Carol Markowitz of the New York Post, where she writes editorials. Carol, always great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I told folks uh, earlier about the CDC summer camp guidance Part of this is that kids outdoors are supposed to have a cohort, not mingle with other cohorts and wear two masks outside and no contact sports. <laughs> right. This this is beyond parody now. What do you make yeah. of it? 
Um, yeah, that's pretty much where I end up on it. I think it's pretty evil. And I think that, you know, I would love to see any of the people who designed this policy spend the day outside in 90 degree weather doing anything that you want, you know, in, at camps, let's say, let's say fine, no contact sports, but like whatever you else people do at camp, I want to see them do it the whole day with a mask on. Uh, because I know that the people designing this policy are going to be in air conditioned offices, not going to affect them whatsoever. It's stunning to me that we're at this place where we still we've gotten the CDC to concede just a little bit. I mean, I think that they're nine months behind reality. That's my new theory about the CDC Mm -hmm. that where they should have they should be, you know, nine months ago is where they are today with outdoor masks. Don't make sense. Now, I know they say only for vaccinated people. I think that's, you know. Now we're talking about infinitesimal risk of, of anything right. happening as opposed to actually, just. Actually, yeah, sorry. Actually, their their guidance, which I feel like has been misrepresented, is for vaccinated and unvaccinated people outside. And so it's actually amazing because they have completely hidden that fact. It is for both. They, picture and it says unvaccinated outside can also not wear a mask that is fascinating because that's not the way the media is reporting <laughs> yeah, on this and that no, not you know the all. messaging yeah. is getting conflated i, I think that well, there are a lot of people don't even who feel bad about not not knowing that because dr fauci was on uh with savannah guthrie and he also had no idea so that's where we are well no i, I saw that interview and so i'm yeah, assuming yeah. that this guy who's supposed to be you know, Dr. Lockdown at least knows what I know. He's from NIAD and not CDC, yeah. which has always mm-hmm. been confusing too. like, why is it that we hear so much from the NIAD guy and so much less from Walensky's out there sometimes from CDC? Yeah. But Fauci is clearly the the star of the lockdown show and has been all along. Right. Absolutely. And he keeps saying things like, well, the CDC relies on science to make their guidance. And, you know, he said that in like two recent interviews in the, in the last you know week or so. And I'm like, show me this science. Where is the science that says that we should be wearing masks outside? And back to the camp guidance, after releasing the guidance to say uh, no masks necessary outside for vaccinated and unvaccinated people, they basically say go back on that and say accept even vaccinated counselors must wear masks. It's like all of it contradicts itself. It, it, it's just everybody I, I got to tell like, you, listen, yeah. I, I was a I was speaking to Carol Markowitz, uh, who's an editorial columnist for The New York Post. Carol, I was I was a camp counselor for many years, and I can tell you that the people that that are that are camp counselors for the most part aren't. Those who have comorbidities and are senior citizens, you know, overwhelmingly, they're going to be telling now 23 year olds uh, with who who are apparently vaccinated that they have to still mask up outside. I mean, the stupidity here is endless. Right. And again, I, I think that the people who made the policy just completely did not consider it. Like, did they ever go to summer camp? Have their kids gone to summer camp? Have they ever seen summer camp? Like I, I, I'm baffled. I'm baffled how anybody could write this with a straight face. Dr. Fauci was sort of laughing at it again with Savannah Guthrie a few days ago, and you know he was saying like, you know, th- yeah, this is this is a, a little conservative. Yeah, you think it's a little conservative? It's a little more than conservative. Carol, schools. You've been one of the stalwarts yeah. on <laughs> schools needing to be open, in-person mm-hmm. learning. Uh, it feels to me like there's not nearly enough attention and i believe it's intentional paid to the Mm -hmm. fact that 30 percent of grade school uh, students nationwide grade school and high school uh, so k through 12 
are mm. still not in full in time uh, in person learning. Yeah, that's stunning. Well, yeah, it is stunning. What's even crazier is that it's in almost entirely in blue areas. It's in areas where they voted for Biden and have no school. I, I don't understand how they don't fight back against this because when Biden says, yeah, maybe schools will be open in September, I, I, I don't see how that's enough. To me, that is nowhere near enough. If schools are not open in September in New York City, my family is moving away, period, end of story, we're out. And I think anybody who's, who isn't capable of doing that um, really needs to have some sort of plan B because I don't schools will be open full time in September. And when I used to say that, I was accused of scaring people. But now Joe Biden's saying the same thing. So people really need to recognize schools may not open. Even if your school is open today, my other thing, I think people don't know if your school is open today, but it wasn't open most of this year, it still might not open in September. I can confirm that you have been accused of being a scaremonger <laughs> and have been proven correct by events. I have been accused of being a scaremonger and have been yeah. proven correct by events or, you know, overly negative about these policies and how long they're going to drag on. So I, I think that anybody that thinks that it's all going to be OK in schools in this city in the fall and, and keep in mind the, the two things that they really don't want to let go of are masks and distancing. I mean, those are the areas where, yeah, yeah you're seeing reopens uh, of, of facilities to a certain level. But always with this limitation on the spacing right. and with masks on. And that means you're also going to have all this stupid pandemic theater stuff of, you know, plexiglass dividers between kids. I mean, it looks mm -hmm. like we're putting children into little miniature maximum security prison facilities. That's what schools look right. like, even in person. But what's hilarious about that is that the little plastic things don't go up. I mean, you know, obviously they only go up a little bit. Um, does the virus not travel over those things or behind the kids? Like it only the virus only knows to go in one direction and never go up or behind. Um, it's it's baffling that anybody saw this and was like, this is a good idea. Let, let's let's spend money on this. We're speaking to Carol Markowitz, who's a columnist for The New York Post. And, you know, Carol, I've been talking to teachers now, having them as guests on, on my various uh, programs that I host. And they are. The, one, the ones will talk to me, of course, which is a, I know a small minority of the overall uh, public school teachers in the country in terms of opinion. But they're appalled at what is just yeah. obvious at this point, obvious hostage taking where the kids and their educations and their, their futures are the hostages for public uh, public teachers union demands. And people don't even right. realize this. It's more staffing. It's more overtime. It's mm -hmm. it's just bigger budgets, more personnel and less work. That's what this is really all about. Yeah, I, I know so many teachers that think that this year has been horrible and they're so sad about what happened to kids. I think a lot of people don't know that the teachers unions are just sort of a different beast than teachers. You have to be in the union to be a teacher. It's like you really don't have a choice. So it's really all very um, complicated. And I don't think we should be blaming teachers. I think uh, so many teachers I know are like, get the math off kids. Um, no, I'm not going to have my window open in, in 20 degree weather. Like a lot of teachers were forced to do throughout the winter in places like New York. Um, and, and they really just want a sane path forward. Of course, their, their unions refuse to let them. Carol, where do you think New York City specifically is going to go with Cuomo saying you had a couple of weeks before reopen here? But I just feel like that's his effort to stay in the center of the storm, so to speak, and be a man who's <laughs> in control and 
beating right. de blasio to the punch and i think we're look <laughs> i mean amazing. obviously these are politicians they're going to play politics with reopen but right. nobody who is paying attention could trust andrew cuomo any further than they could throw him and he's a pretty big dude yeah absolutely i i don't know what's going to happen uh because i just don't trust at all i have no faith i have no trust i don't I, you know they whatever they say does not matter because it, they could just turn it around at any moment um science has no no role here it, it, they're not relying on data to make decisions they're just willy-nilly sort of throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks and so um i don't know i you know i hope i hope new york turns around i hope things open and kind of start moving back toward normal i hope that we have an amazing summer and you know the city really bounces back i love that stupid place but like i i'm afraid that the damage has been done to such an extent and that people are so afraid and they've been led to be so afraid for so long that it's going to be hard to bounce them back. Now, I, I know you're in Florida and DeSantis says July 1st, no local mandates, emergency mandates over COVID yeah. are allowed to keep going. Does that mean that Miami, for example, and and, you know, uh, Fort Lauderdale and Tampa and Orlando will have to get rid of their local mask mandates or how does that work? So it's interesting because there's a lot of like, you know, bureaucratic stuff that I don't entirely understand because I'm not a Floridian, but a lot of people are concerned because they're apparently the, the local municipalities can um, not agree to this and, or they can sort of make their own rules, but not, you know, not call it like rules, but call it guidelines. It's something like along, along those lines. Um, and so but I, I've heard from people on the ground in Florida who say that this is going to be tough to achieve because the blue counties are going to push on it because that's the way things are right now you know if you're a, a democrat you you mask you extra mask it doesn't matter if you've been vaccinated and if you're a, a republican you're sort of wanting to move on with your life um and that's the divide that we have right now and they have that in florida as well i actually think this is i i really believe this i'm not a doctor i don't play one on radio i think this has turned into a clinical level anxiety disorder for a lot of people yeah lockdown or yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I think people are having a really hard time um, getting out of it. What, what's really crazy, I mean, you know, we've talked about this before, but the messaging on vaccines has been so bad that the people who believe in the vaccines behave as if they don't believe in the vaccines. So it sends a message to vaccine skeptical people that, you know, maybe something's wrong with these vaccines. Maybe we shouldn't be taking them. Um, I have, I'm on the record. I've t- I took the Johnson and Johnson. I encourage other people to get vaccinated, but I understand the perspective of vaccine skeptical people seeing that nothing is changing. No masks are being removed. No social distancing rules are being removed and thinking, wow, maybe these vaccines don't work. Carol Markowitz, everybody go to newyorkpost.com to read her latest work. Carol's done great stuff on this all throughout the lockdown. Carol, Good to talk Thank to you. We'll talk so to you much. soon. Thank you, Buck. I, have a, a, uh, I would have a climate forum for the world in Washington within 100 days. Well, 40 heads of state showed up from the largest countries in the world to some of the smallest. We can't deny it. There is a real change in the, in the weather. And if we go 1.5 degrees warmer, we're going to be in real trouble, a point of no return. Matter of fact, a lot of what we're going to have to build back now in terms of infrastructure. We got to build back to a different standard, not to what it was. It's got to be better because the climate has changed enough now that it's still going to rise two feet when when it rains. Still going to. We got to build for what is needed now, and I promise you, we're going to do that. 
and we're better so we're better prepared to withstand storms and becoming more severe and more frequent. Promise you we're gonna, you know, we're gonna reach the point of no return. I mean, you know, it's gonna be like like when you know when it's like real gets real hot in the room and then you know, you feel a little bead of, bead of sweat coming down your forehead. And you're tired, though, and you don't want to get up. And you got a blanket across your knees. And you realize, I don't I don't need this blanket. And it's, you know, you're, we really got to build back better. And I mean, this is the president of the United States. True international over depression. This is the guy who's a leader of the free world. Thanks, Democrats. You really, really take your civic duty seriously. <laughs> it's unbelievable, isn't it? If we get 1.5 degrees warmer, you know, it's pretty much the end of the world. Well, you know, Joe, we'll handle it. This is this is also one of the reasons why I I'm I have not been surprised about the way the the left has reacted to COVID and all this stuff uh, because in truth they're already they're already looking for religion replacements or or for new age religions based upon science uh, and so yeah the the mask religion and the, and the the high priest of masking and distancing Dr Fauci. Uh, that may be a, a surprise when you think about that on its own. But really, when you consider the way that climate change is effectively a religious belief for people who think they're too smart for religion, religion that involves God, uh, it all adds up and all makes sense. Uh, these are people that are looking for some existential purpose, and they really think that talking about preventing a global temperature rise of 1.5 degrees is is an, the most urgent challenge of our time. Now, I understand there might be an impulse sometimes to think, oh, let them have their silly belief about this. It doesn't really matter. What's the big deal, Buck? What's the problem? And and the the, the problem is that they use this and by the way, I don't think any of you really believe that. I'm just I'm having a, a make believe conversation with a person who's not very attuned. This audience is very attuned to what's going on. But if someone were to say to me, you know, why why does this matter to you so much? I'd say because they use this this idea of climate change as the existential crisis of our time to affect our lives in countless ways. I mean, people lose their jobs. People have less wealth. People have less freedom. Because of this absolutely absurd belief. I mean, when I say this, I really mean it. These, these climate change catastrophists are out of their GD minds. They are absolutely nuts. And I don't care how many climatologists you think that like the top science students are like, oh, I want to be a climatologist. I don't want to be a brain surgeon. I want to be a climatologist. Yeah, sure. I don't care how many climatologists or Climate science experts come forward. They always love to cite these people, too, as the experts. Then you find out, wait, this person's really just a bureaucrat who works for the U.N. And if you go deep enough into the footnotes on some of these papers, like the IPCC, the International Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, you see they really don't even know. It's all just confidence estimates. It's all, well, we think this could happen or this could happen. We think that could happen or this other thing could happen. 
but Joe Biden gives these speeches and all these sanctimonious liberals go, yeah, build back better to prevent the world from melting from climate change. And they don't think that they're crazy. They think you and I are crazy. It's crazy not to think the world's going to end because, you know, got the key master and Gozer and up on the top of the building with all the light show going on and, you know, the Ghostbusters, the whole thing. She's back, everybody, and Coulter. That's right, the syndicated columnist, 13-time New York Times bestselling author of Mugged, Godless, Adios America. I can't name them all off the top of my head. There's a bunch of them, though. And Coulter, everybody, and thanks for uh, joining us. Absolutely. Anytime, Buck Sexton. So here's my, my thought. Ed. There are there are two crises going on. You, you write about one of them uh, this week in your column, but there are two crises going on um, that the media just flatly doesn't want to touch very much. And uh, one is the border, which is a total mess, the worst it's ever been. And very little in the, you know, the, the media drumbeat on this one is non-existent. The other is the national crime surge, which you do write about this week. And I'm just wondering, at what level does this have to get to before they really can't cover this up for BLM, the Democrats and Biden anymore? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I, I suspect they will never mention it, um, but they can't hide it because it's it's happening to people. And the thing about crime um, well, it's always been a great issue for Republicans um, because Democrats, by their nature, are just pro-criminal and we are pro- anti-criminal. Uh, but we lost it as an issue after after Giuliani was elected and then and, and well, before that, um, Reagan and Bush building prisons, appointing judges who were not releasing criminals and attorney generals who were not releasing criminals Um and so, you know, unfortunately, whenever Republicans win, they lose an issue, at least if they keep their promises. Um, and a lot of Republicans finally did. It had built for decades. So it's a great issue. Um, it's it's very, very bad for the country. I mean, as you and I are speaking right now, there are people who are alive who will not be alive next year, the year after, the year after. They'll be horribly maimed. They'll be traumatized by rape. Um, the crime rate is going up astronomically um as i mentioned in the column um well i'll flesh it out a little more here after ferguson and the media and all cultural institutions telling telling black people that they're horribly oppressed especially by police um and police policing comes from chasing slave patrols um um footnote not true um, yeah i always wonder just why they get away with that because that's not true but anyway keep going yeah, we'll get back to that. Keep that footnote alive. Um, after so after the the it, that after Ferguson, Ferguson, you know, Michael Brown, Big Mike, hands up, don't shoot, and that was sort of the beginning, at least in a in a, in a big way. Um, or at first, it came to I think most people's attention of Black Lives Matter. Um, from 2014, when when the Ferguson shooting happened, to 2015. Um, violent crime murders went up 12 a little more than 12 percent the greatest year-to-year increase since 1968 when it was only slightly higher the increase it was like 12.2 versus 12.7 something like that 
The next year, 2015 to 2016, it went up again. Um, then it kind of leveled out. Um, perhaps, perhaps it was, uh, you know, tr Trump coming in and and appointing his judges, who were not probably going to be releasing criminals. Okay, so consider those are the two biggest crime increases. Last year, May 25th, um, the the sainthood of George Floyd and 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 the Derek Chauvin. That that was Black Lives Matter exploding like never before. Riots all over the country. Just in 2020, from to, to the 2019 to 2020, the gun murder rate increased 31 percent. That is the most. That isn't even a full year of 2020. Um, so, um, well, it is technically, but but the the explosion began you know it was a week or two after yeah it was may june of 2020 we can all see this is, i've looked at these statistics for everyone who's wondering it wasn't during the lockdown in march and you know the first couple of weeks when all the shootings were happening that's actually not how it went no not at all no 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 it started about it um well i don't know it was about a week after um the sainthood martyrdom of of george floyd um, so, so for only those months, basically, um, you know, June, July, August through December, 31% increase in, in gun murders. And what people, I think, um, Democrats perhaps, um, and, and people look at the numbers don't understand about crime, um, is that it goes out in, in concentric circles, a murder, a rape, an assault, affects more than that one person um there's the family the friends the girlfriend the grandmother the neighborhood um the people the person works with um um <laughs> we're speaking to ann coulter go to antcoulter.com for her latest column you know just Ann, as a, a quick scan as I, as I was telling you at the very beginning here the border's the worst it, it is it is actually the worst it has ever been meaning that there are more people coming across in greater numbers from more places than certainly in the last 20 years and really there's nothing comparable like this we've had no we've had nothing like this in terms of homicide increase in certainly again 20 years some people say back to the 1960s if you do a quick scan as i just have of, of like cnn.com which is the biggest liberal news site in the world perhaps after the new york times u.s weighs unfreezing one billion dollars in iranian funds and steel prices have tripled bank of america is worried those are their top wow. stories. I mean, yeah. just so people want to know, under a Democrat administration, when you have massive, simultaneous, provable by the numbers crises, we're hearing about the U.S. maybe unfreezing a billion dollars in Iranian funds. Who the heck yes. cares? Yes. Yes. Whenever they are talking about the Middle East, which which is an, a crutch for for both right wing and left wing networks, um, I, I feel like Winston Smith in 1984. And are we at war with, um, you know, East Asia, West Asia? Which war is going on now to distract the masses? Um, but I have to say this mass mass illegal immigration, that's and and the, the enormous increase in refugees. That's something else that's not going to be able. It's not just numbers on a ledger. It's not just new Democratic voters. Um, they're illegals are going into and, and, and they're here to say um, they'll be driving down wages. 
<clears throat> they'll be moving into neighborhoods, changing the character of those neighborhoods. They will be, some of them, yes, committing crimes. That isn't to say they're all criminals. Um, but obviously, some of them are because the ones, the coyotes are. There will be more human trafficking and there will be more drugs. With the refugees, one thing, having just bashed Trump, um, one one thing, he one promise he kept. Um, and And boy, did it pay dividends was the first thing he did when, when Steve Bannon was still there, incidentally, first week in office when, when he <laughs> he must have thought maybe he should keep some of his promises. Um, and he, he issued the, what was, well, what I affectionately refer to as the Muslim ban, um, the travel ban. Um, and as your listeners, I'm sure know, it wasn't a Muslim ban. It was a, a restriction on Im- immigrants coming in from countries where there was no way to vet them. There is no, you know, Pakistani FBI or, or wherever the country well, was. Well, there kind and of is, but had, we definitely can't trust them. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> right. OK, fine. And uh, and that had been that countries that were, were known for for producing terrorist terrorists coming to this country. Um, it's a striking fact. You never notice things that don't happen. There was not a terrorist attack in this country <laughs> for for Trump's four years in office and and continuing now. Um, okay, that doesn't. Oh, so what, Anne? Um, from nine eleven up until Trump came into office, there were pretty big terrorist attacks, um, rather frequently. Um, maybe I mean there was the Pulse nightclub, there was the Boston Marathon, there was Fort Hood, there was San Bernardino. That was just under Obama. Yes, and it was. I'm, you know, there are others I'm not thinking of. I, um, I ended up working some of those cases, Anne, and, and there were a lot of other ones, by the way, that were close to actually happening that people don't even really know about. But keep going. At, so that is something that is the, the wild open borders and we're not going to vet anyone. Oh, and um, to the extent, um, you know, COVID is a continuing problem. Um, as we know, the illegals pouring in across the border aren't being checked for COVID. So we're going to have a bigger problem getting that under control. These are all things that aren't just numbers of people coming across. There is a reason that a ridiculous creature like Donald Trump was elected president by promising to build a wall, crack down on illegal immigration, put America first, crack down on legal immigration. That drives wages down every bit as much as as illegal immigration does. It's great for the rich. It's rotten for the working class. Their wages haven't gone up in 30, 40 years. And the donor class, the rich people, no, bring them in, bring them in. We want to pay our our workers even less. Um, And the Democrats' answer to that is, we'll raise the minimum wage and send out unemployment checks. That's a really miserable, hopeless country. Ann Coulter, everybody, AnnCoulter.com for her latest column. Ms. Coulter, always a pleasure. Talk to you soon. Good to talk to you, Buck. Bye-bye. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. It's time for Roll Call. Wow, 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 wow. Bruce Mark, if you had to be a rock star at one point in our history, like what what year would you pick to be at the top of the rock star game? Oh, for sure the eighties. I mean, yeah. come on. Yeah. If you were if you were in, you know, Def Leppard or Van Halen or Poison or one of these bands in the eighties, 
you were like you were you were treated like a cultural god. Yeah, you know the whole other because there there was nothing as cool as going to a hair band concert and just you know eighty thousand people of the whole thing. It's just you know it doesn't that doesn't really exist the same way anymore. It just doesn't. I always say the one thing I regret is after um, the movie about Queen came out, Bohemian Rhapsody. I don't know if you saw it. No. A fantastic movie, and it made me realize Queen might have been the best live band and how awesome that would have been to see a band like that, any of those big 80s bands in a packed stadium all singing along. Like that just It doesn't happen anymore, maybe because we're in the middle of COVID, we don't realize maybe it does, but there's no like newer bands that do stuff like that. Yeah, you know, it's funny too. Like I realized... I went through a period in the mid '90s when I loved U2. I just thought U2 was like the greatest band in the world. I don't. I don't really listen to U2 anymore. You know, it just didn't really, didn't really stick. And I don't not like it, but it just didn't stay with me quite well, the same way. You, you you like new U2 in concert? Coldplay. Oh yeah, well of course. A lot of They're people good. joke that Coldplay is uh, younger U2, so that's why yeah, that's kind of true. Yeah, they're good. Um, I just want to say to anyone who came out to hear me speak at the Metropolitan Republican Club last night in New York City, uh, great event, had a really good time. Um, I'm going to try to post the audio of the speech because we had a lot of fun with it on uh, BuckSexton.com. So uh, as soon as I get that, we'll be putting it up there. You should all go check it out. It's it's a fun live event. I got to interact with the crowd a bit as I was giving the speech and you know we were it was a totally packed house, which I appreciated. We, we went way beyond sellout. We just did standing room only. And I don't know, we had 130, 140 people in the room, something like that. So it was, uh, which, and the, the, it's really, I mean, it's not a fire code thing, but really we were going to have 100 people, all socially distanced and vaccinated, of course, of course. Uh, so, yeah, and we, had a, we had a great event last night. I really, really enjoyed it. All right, let me get into some of the roll call here. Rich. Team Buck, I enjoyed part of uh, part one of the Siege of Malta and I'm anxiously awaiting part two. Well done and keep up the great work. I was a history major in college. My favorite courses were Greek and Roman history. Unfortunately for me, the one course on Byzantine history was never available for my schedule. Sigh. The food discussions are starting to get to me. I'm seriously considering giving a moink box to my niece as a birthday gift. Rich, my man, get a moink box for your niece. Moinkbox.com slash buck. Moinkbox.com. Moinkbox.com slash buck. Uh, get it for your niece. Get it for yourself, man. I just, I had the chicken breast earlier this week. I'm halfway through my first Moink box already. I've had it like a, like a week. Made steaks, made a whole roast chicken, and it's just really good. It really is top quality. I mean, this is great stuff. So, you know, I got to get producer Mark. When's your birthday? A month ago. That's right. I even said happy birthday. You did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We got you a gift. I just, re- I just remember this now. Mm. But you know what? Next year for your birthday, 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 Moink, we'll also get you a Moink box. Well, maybe Moink can send me a housewarming present in a few weeks. There we go. Now you're talking. Now you're thinking. Uh, Producer thinking Mark knows how to box, get it done. Yeah. The, the, the Mrs. Eats... Eats meat, right? Yeah, she just doesn't eat red meat. It hurts her stomach. But other than gotcha. That, but chicken, she's good. Chicken, pork, yeah, everything other than okay. beef. Okay, okay, cool. All right, yeah, because they got great stuff. Uh, oh, and the, the siege of Malta too. I, I had a crazy week this week, Rich. But the the research is already done. It'll be uh, by next weekend. You'll have siege of Malta part two. And I appreciate. I feel like the members of Team Buck who like it really appreciate that. 
and the ones who, uh, you know, if, if, if you're not into the history, you know, you just listen to the Bucks Exxon show because it's a, it's a separate, we do a separate podcast, we just release it. But I really think you should check it out, guys, because it's a, the Siege of Malta is an incredible story. It really is. And I just do this because I love it. You know, I just I find this stuff really interesting. This is a passion project for me. Uh, all right. We've got uh, Douglas. For over 400 years, it was said knowledge is power. But in the madness of today, it is emotional ignorance is omnipotent. Uh, well, Douglas. Thank you for thank you for weighing in on that. I appreciate it. Kevin. And hey, Buck, while it's far off and he may not win, I think if Trump runs in 2024 and wins for a second term, that his inauguration, uh, he should go full on blank the libs and blast the boys are back in town. I'd love to see their angry faces. Also, you and producer Mark were discussing the Rangers and Capitals fight. It reminded me of the Wings Avalanche brawl in 98 after Claude Lemieux drove Chris Draper into the boards in 96 and how Darren McCarthy headed out for Lemieux and got revenge for his teammate. And who could forget a game where two goalies skate out to the center and throw down to top it all off? Just wondering if you guys heard about that night. Thanks for all you do. Shields high. Bruce and Mark, the, the goalie fight, one of the best ever? Oh, of course. Those uh, Wings Avalanche rivalry in the 90s, some of the best hockey games ever played. There we go. All right, everybody, have a fantastic weekend. Please pass the buck. Tell somebody you know about the Bucks Action Show. Better than that, send them a text or an email with the link to the Bucks Action Podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Talk to you all Monday. Shields high.